We often think about property in terms of its growth and its yield and its financial metrics, right? And then it's, you know, land size and whatever, and much less so about the experience of the person who's going to be living in it, existing in it, working in it, whatever the kind of property it is. And it would be just so great if we could quantify all of that stuff somehow so that it also became a metric by which to succeed. But for the moment, let's just go with if you're adding value to people's lives and they're happy, then, as you say, they're more likely to stay, more likely to respect and take care of your investment. It's got to be good financially as well. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice and abundance. And I am super excited for today's guest. But before I get to who that is, I want to talk about something. The whole reason we want to invest in property is to create a better life for ourselves. And what is that? You know, when we think about wealth creation, what we actually should be thinking about is not just the financial side, but things like well-being, happiness, fulfillment, all of these other factors that make a good life, which is why I'm really, really excited to have this guest on today because she specializes in helping you to design spaces that create an optimal life existence. It's kind of how I frame it. I'd love to, uh, we want to dig into that a bit more. But Amy Lockman, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. How are you? Thanks so much, Chris. I'm doing well, thanks. So I'm super excited to have you on the show because you recently did a uh, what we call a Feed Your Mind session. And for those of you listening at home, we actually do something with our team. We're a 100% remote business and we do things periodically once a month where we invite special guests into the business to, to present to our team, to help them become a better version of themselves on, on all facets of life. And the feedback that we got from our team on the specific one that you did, Dr. Amy, was immense. People said it was in, you know, to put it bluntly, they basically said it was life changing. There was a lot of stuff that people really took away and implemented in their life. But I really want to get into like, what is it that you do? Because it's such a specialized area of of psychology that I really want to get into it. So, want to give us the kind of background, like, what is it that you actually do? Yeah, so it's all about helping cre- people create workspaces or work practices that enhance their focus, their creativity, their productivity, and their overall well being. Um, I've spent the last decade or so in scientific research and as an educator in universities, um, looking at how science can inform our lives. So that's kind of the angle I come at everything with. Um, so I've looked at designing spaces for well-being, but also habits, diets, lifestyles, work practices, the whole thing. Um, and I've become really frustrated with how slowly science is actually translated into real life. So that's what I'm aiming to do with Thoughtful Spaces is to kind of bring the gems from neuroscience, environmental psychology, design principles to people's lives so that they can apply them, pick up whatever resonates the most and make small but meaningful changes to how they do, mostly working remotely, but it you know applies more broadly to life too. So why didn't you focus, because what you mentioned there is really, really fascinating. And, and I, I, I love talking to scientists because you, know, you obviously go really, really deep on these areas and deeply try and understand. I try and do that too, but obviously I'm, I don't, I'm not a doctor, you're a doctor. So, you know, you, you've definitely gone a lot further on that path than I have. And you mentioned there that like a lot of your thinking has been around, broadly speaking, it's around well-being, And you, as you mentioned, it, all kinds of different stuff, habits, everything like that. Why have you focused on spaces? Like why, why have you narrowed your focus onto the environments and the spaces that people are in? Why, do, why has that become the key lever? Yeah, so I have always been fascinated in the kind of forgotten aspects of well-being. We all know the basics, sleep lots. Now we sort of talk about eating well, staying positive. There are kind of these dominant narratives about well-being. 
The last research topic I was really deeply in for almost a decade was about the gut microbiome. And the reason that really pulled me in is because prior to that, the last decade really, psychologists, psychiatrists, people talking about mental health never considered the gut, but actually it's hugely important. And similarly, the physical environment, it's almost like a an afterthought. We think we are people, it's more important what happens inside us or in our brains, but there's all this other environmental stuff that we're not always conscious of it mattering and making a difference, but it does. And so, and there's actually all this science as well that just doesn't get talked about as much and doesn't get applied. It's such low-hanging fruit, so low risk, such a huge opportunity for people to leverage this information for improving well-being, and that's why I've really honed in on it. It's really fascinating because my my personal passion is not actually real estate, right? <laughs> Believe it or not, my personal passion is my personal passion is like how do how do I help people to live their best life? That really, that's the fundamental thing, and so. The whole reason, the whole reason that we started um, uh, Dashlight is because we could see that a lot of people were like, like wealth in a, in the context of like the whole picture of creating a good life. Wealth is a portion of it, and we recognise an opportunity that we could help people on that side of things. But then, you know, I'm the first person to say that like property is not going to make you happy, right? It's like it's a it's a pathway to get you to a place where you can live a better life, and then you've got to start thinking like, well, what else creates a better life? Things like to to your point, you know, it's it's things like health both mental and physical it's it's the places we are and if you think about maslow's hierarchy of needs the first layer is uh psychological uh, sorry physiological needs which is things like shelter right so the very first instance shelter is one of the very first very first things that we need to start to feel okay but what's really interesting is that beyond just the the need the physiological need for shelter the spaces that we are in and the environments that we are in actually transcend through four of the five stages of Maslow's hierarchy's needs. So physiological needs. Okay, have I got like a roof to protect me from rain and sun? Safety needs. Okay, am I in a space where I feel safe, where I can actually feel happy and calm and secure? Love and belonging. What actually happens in those spaces? Can you Are you bringing your family around you? Have you, have you got a place where you can be with family and friends? Can you actually create that space? Yeah, what can Even you do there? Even to level. Yeah, exactly. And to the to the esteem level, it's like, is this place a representative of how I feel about myself and, and everything like that? And so you've really got this really interesting transcendence. And I think, you know, when we talk about work, home, whatever, particularly in the context of uh, this conversation, you know, being Dash not being hundred percent remote and the conversation we've been having around designing your workspaces at home to 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 better have that kind of overwhelm. But if you just think about the macro of the spaces that we're in, how much that shapes our worldview is is really really critically important, and our experience of the world. So, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, how can like I, I want to dig into that that a little bit further? So, can can we start to try and expand on this idea of how specifically the spaces that we're in or the environments that we're in? How does that actually impact our worldview? Because a lot of people might be thinking, "Well, I'm in a room," but like you know, what's the what's the difference between good and bad, or how can we start to develop that narrative? Yeah, well, worldview I see is the way we, our perspective on the world. I'd probably frame it a little bit differently to that. I'd probably frame it more in terms of how your body is physiologically and therefore the foundation on which your mind and brain brain operates. I think perspective and worldview for me is just a little bit further from that. I don't know if I can draw as long a bow as to say it'll change your perspective. Totally fine. But, but if we talk about kind of sensory perception, how well your body is and then how your mind and brain can 
can act and be in response to that. Then there are a million and one ways that the physical environment affects that. And it's really interesting you mentioning the um, levels of um, the hierarchy, the needs, because I hadn't really seen it from that lens. But I think, if, you know, for self-actualization, we do need autonomy and choice, which you're all about at Dashdot. And that extends to how much control you have over your environment, which is a huge factor in terms of its well-being. So this is where I think the science of it can add to design because I'm not an architect, I'm not an interior designer. They have their own perspectives on that and there's certainly like design principles and beauty and all that sort of thing. But the choice that, you know, we don't all agree on what's beautiful and great because how meaningful it is to us personally, how the choices we've made in what it looks like and how it functions is integral to how well it suits our individual needs. There's a huge degree of personalization in this as well. But if we talk about the the ways that it impacts our well-being, um, so many of them we're not even conscious of. For example, there's all this research coming out about blue space, being able to see or interact with sort of oceans and bodies of water, and showing that even looking at an ocean reduces our heart rate. Now, I feel great when I go to the ocean, but I've never sort of consciously clocked that my heart is beating more slowly. And of course, on in you know the long term, we want that you know overall for a lower heart rate is better. Um, we know that noise pollution in the form of like um, overhead plane noise interrupts kids' learning because they've got to filter out that drone noise versus the information they're learning. And over time, that makes them less um, able to remember and learn new information. We know that cluttered spaces can increase how stressed um, people are in terms of their cortisol levels. So these are just a few examples of these relatively small effects, but combined it's you know quite profound i think if we actually thought about all of those elements and more yeah and i and i, and I, I actually want to push back on the on the your point of view on how it affects the worldview now world worldview in in the in the way that i think about it is like how you perceive the world and you know i i think everything you've pointed to i, I actually i want to i want to reinforce my my view that i think that this actually does impact massively your worldview because everything you've just said there like um if you can feel calmer because you can see blue right what does that do that's that's necessarily going to lower your cortisol levels which you know the, the jets overhead it's and all of these things chemically biologically are going to change how you're responding to the inputs that you're having right and so if you're in a high state of stress and anxiety and somebody um says something to you you might be like oh my god this person's you know, I think that is so whatever. fair. You know, yeah, you're it will change your perceptions. Yeah, I get that. I'd agree with yeah, that. Yeah, it will change your perceptions. And so, and your perception is your reality. And so, if if you can exist in a space where you feel calm, centered, emotionally controlled, soothed, then necessarily the problems or challenges that come along in life will become small and relatively insignificant. If you're in a place where you feel highly stressed, highly anxious, all of that kind of stuff, even small things will become very big things and those those both compound you have a either have like a negative feedback loop or a positive feedback loop and so i i think and this is kind of just generally how i think about like optimizing a life generally right because i don't think there is a right or a wrong to, to your point it's like well some people might want to be by the ocean and some people might want to be in a forest right and that, that's okay there is no or in the city like what is good is relatively yeah or in the city yeah yeah what is good is relatively subjective um but the point being is if you can identify the characteristics that create 
an environment where you feel happy, fulfilled, enriched on a day-to-day basis, you're far more likely to be successful. And when I say successful, I don't just mean financially. I mean, in all ways, in your relationships, in your um, intellectual pursuits, in your all of these kind of things, because you're going to be operating from, from a better place. And so I, I think, and you know, if we think about work, work is the one place we spend the most amount of time. Um, it's another uh, reason why I hired singularly, you But then also if you work... Yeah, it's yeah, so important. Spend, and exactly. So, and this is where this is where this is where there's great synergy between what you do and certainly my view of work and business, right? And so, when we started building Dashdot, I'm lucky enough to have never had a real job, right? So, I don't know what happens in these corporate offices and you know all of this kind of stuff. Uh, but we set out to go. Okay, well, if we have to have a like, if we have to go to if we had to have a real job, Gabby and I, like, well, we'd want to try and create a workplace where the kind of place that we'd want to go to work. So what would that what would that have to be like? And how would we have to think about that? Because you spend the majority of your waking hours at work. So how could you make something that is fulfilling and enriching and the kind of place that you're excited to to be rather than a place that you go to and then escape from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's so I think a real opportunity for it to become something that contributes to well being rather than what detracts from well being, which so many people's work situations are things that detract or that cause burnout, that deplete them rather than something which nourishes them. And I, the space is one way where you can kind of feed yourself back by taking care of that space that you work in. Yeah, 100%. Can you talk to me about neuroarchitecture? It's an, it's an, interesting, uh, it's an interesting word. What do you mean by neuroarchitecture and then how can people think about, think about this application? So it's essentially the conglomeration of the fields of neuroscience and architecture, and an appreciation of the fact that they intersect. That it's not just, buildings are not benign, they affect us. And increasingly, both neuroscience is recognising the impact of the built environment on brains, and architecture is also beginning to understand that their decisions and their structures and the worlds we are built, that are built around us or that we you know live in, impact our brains as well and so there's a whole field called neuroarchitecture i went to a conference just earlier this year on it um and there's a lot of you know vr um experiments looking at how brain waves change when you walk through different spaces and things like that and gradually it's fairly new field but it's starting to build up an understanding of the architectural effects on people's brains essentially yeah that's fascinating it's fascinating because what i'm what i'm where my mind is going, and, and I hope you don't mind that this is this is a bit of a free range conversation because I think it's just a f- fascinating kind of topic to wander through. Where my mind is going is is actually around the intersection of doing good things and capitalism, right? Which is interesting because you know on the kind of like financial like pursuit side, yeah. And I think that there's different degrees of that. You know, there's social entrepreneurship, which is like um, you know fully deeply embedded in um uh you know social justice courses but there's also um how can how can i create a situation where both people on both sides of the economic um, transaction are enriched by the experience and in doing so does that actually make the transaction better and so my thinking around this was actually i'm thinking about um property investors which is obviously a a very most of the people listening to the show are going to be property investors uh, and and we won't necessarily delve into the, you know, what I want to focus on is the the design of spaces for tenants is a really interesting concept because you get a lot of you get a lot of kind of landlords or there's certainly a perception of landlords and I think there are a portion of landlords out there 
uh, property investors who just they want to spend the least amount of money. They don't want to fix anything. They're just like, ah, you know, and it's very sort of like us versus them. My personal point of view, and certainly something that we've been uh, big advocates of just generally, is you know, you're in the when you're in when you're a property investor, you're in you're in you're in business. That the the product that you're providing or the service you're providing is accommodation solutions. Every one of your tenants, they're one of your clients, and so happy clients is really good for business. And so you're highly incentivized to make the experience good and supportive for the tenants. Now, I'm also a renter, so I also am on the other side of it. I'm like, I, I want a good experience. So then thinking that through, how how could maybe, um, how could property investors think about neuroarchitecture as it relates to to their investment properties? Because if they can create a space that is feels better, is better, keeps people for longer, the tenants are happier, Got to that be is a good thing well. to do for the other people. Bingo. It's going to be good for the people that will translate, uh, at least at some stage, into economic um, uh, you know, benefits as well. How would you think about that? Or could I, how would you kind of um, expand on that thread? Yeah, I really love that. I think it, it humanizes a financial topic. And I hope that that view becomes more of a dominant view because we often think about property in terms of its growth and its yield and its financial metrics, right? And then it's you know land size and whatever. Um, and much less so about the experience of the person who's going to be living in it, existing in it, working in it, whatever the kind of property it is. Um, and it would be just so great if we could quantify all of that stuff somehow so that it also became a metric by which to succeed. But for the moment, let's just go with if you're in, adding value to people's lives and they're happy, then, as you say, they're more likely to stay, more likely to respect and take care of your investment. It's got to be good financially as well. But um, if we flip back to the, the human side, um, having established that it's definitely good for business, um, there are definitely features of a property that you can enhance or think about that are going to in- impact the well-being of the occupants. And there are some that are just inherent in a property, right? Like the aspect, the way it faces, the way the sunlight comes in, whether it's got natural light, how much, um, whether the building materials are made to last, whether they're renewable whether um, the occupants can access nature from within the building, whether it's indirectly through looking at it or hearing it or something, or easily get there. So I guess that kind of location, to a park, ocean or a river or something, they are. All of those things are really important, but um, I acknowledge that they're also fixed aspects of a property that a um, an owner can't necessarily readily change. So let's presume that, you know, you've bought somewhere, you're not exactly going to flip it on its axis to make sure it's north-facing or lift it to somewhere else, there are also things that you can do, I think, to modify it to make sure it it fits well-being better. And one of those things is something I mentioned earlier about autonomy. People really connect with a place a lot better and have better well-being if they have some control over their space. And I think that's really something that motivates people towards home ownership is from a sort of frustration or perceived frustration that they won't be able to really feel that they have control over um, decisions they make or, you know, the the aspects of where they live. Um, But if you can provide that to occupants of of a rented place, then you're giving them a lot of the benefits that people see as being required of requiring home ownership to have. So I think one of them is just to provide autonomy wherever you can. Often that doesn't cost anything. It's just sort of relinquishing a bit of control. Um, and then they'll be sort of taking up suggestions that will, you know, the people that live there will know 
the things that will make them more comfortable usually. And if they have the guts to ask, um, I think it's worth really considering. So, you know, a fly door to stop the pests coming in so they can get a breeze. You know, a breeze is and natural airflow is super important. It sounds really obvious. Kind of overlooked in lots of buildings, particularly new build apartments, just often don't have through breeze. Um, also, not that easy to retrofit, but, you know, if you're in a position to, kind of a, a no-brainer. Um, you know, awnings to offset afternoon heat. There's obviously glare and heat problems um, that make places pretty uncomfortable. Even the option to paint a wall a different colour costs you nothing to sort of accept that proposal. Um, generally will add value if they're, you know, making decent choices and allows that person to feel like they um, kind of are part of the space and it's part of who they are and they can express their identity and stuff. So, hmm. I think there are a few ideas. So it, it's yeah, that's really fascinating. I want to, I want to, I want to um, tease out some of that uh, as well. Y- you at the start of that um, um, uh, soliloquy, you, you sort of you were talking about how creating spaces that creating the, the, with your property portfolio, the people inside the portfolio matter. It's the same thing as like when you're investing in shares, right? So when you're investing in shares, you're investing in a business, and then within those businesses are a whole bunch of human beings. And people can relate to that, right? And so then if you think about like, would I want to invest in businesses where um, the culture was great and where the people in, you know, culture matters so much in business. It's such a driver of value. You naturally can then start to then think about how does, how does that then translate to your property portfolio? Like imagine if you had a property portfolio and you had tenants who um, would be excited to live there for the next five or 10 years and uh, also felt gratitude to be there, right? Rather than sort of um, adversarial relationship, because I've, I've been in I've I've been in rental properties, particularly when I was in my twenties, where it was a bit like, you know, the landlord does nothing for us. We're not doing anything. It was a bit. It felt adversarial, right? But you're but not going to give you, anything could you back create if you a scenario? don't feel like someone's being generous towards you. Oh yeah, T- totally. You. But could you create an environment where um, it didn't feel adversarial, where it felt um, collaborative, where you were invested in their well-being, um, and they would also in turn invest uh, in the well-being of you and subsequently your assets? Tony Robbins talks about um, the six human needs, uh, and I won't go through all of them, but but two that that popped out as you were kind of like talking about was was certainty and uncertainty. We all human beings want certainty, right? But they also want variety, and so if you could feasibly create a because like one of the biggest one of the biggest um concerns of, of renters and one of the reasons that they feel like they they might need to go and buy a home which i actually for, for 90 percent of people i don't think buying a home is actually like a smart move personally um so but one of the reasons they want to do that is they want that autonomy like you said they want to they, they want to feel like they can just you know do it on their own certainty yeah certainty they want they want to feel they don't want to feel like they're going to get kicked out next year or what if what if suddenly the landlord just raises the the rent or they, there's this uncertainty and because of that uncertainty people don't feel like they want to sink some roots in i've been in that situation as well where it's like we're here but like uh like the last place that gabby and i rented uh before before this place we were like we we thought of all these things we wanted to do to invest in the place to make it better but we were like well I don't know, like, I'm not sure if we should do that because we might not be here in 12 months. And so we didn't. And so we actually had a suboptimal living experience, partly because we weren't prepared to invest in things that we would be happy to pay for that we didn't expect the landlord to pay for. 
but we didn't do it and sub- subsequently had a suboptimal experience. And so I, I wonder if this, because um, like the, the concept like on a micro is like, how do you set up your spaces to make you feel better? Cool. But then on a macro is how do you think about environment considerations in a way that creates overall well-being? And, and I'm wondering, just thinking out loud, like imagine if you had a scenario where, you know, your tenants were, you, you could you could set up a longer term agreement where it was like 12 months renewable and you had, hey, by the way, here's what we're going to do. Every year, the rent's going to go up by 5%. Then it's known certainty. Uh, we want you to stay long term. Ideally, you'd be living here for the next five or 10 years. We want to incentivize that. And also, um, these are all the things you can do to make your place uh, a home. Uh, if you want to paint a wall, not a problem. Got to let us know. Uh, or whatever, and when you move out, we we if if we request it, you've got to paint it back to the original color, or you, you know whatever, and you could set you this think up. There to would say, be reasonable ways treat to this do like that. your home. Yeah, why the system? Yeah. I, I mean, you're in this business, not me. The system should be better geared to do that. And yeah. in Europe, I think they do have much longer tenancies, and then tenants start to get better rights the longer they're there. Um, I don't know the the ins and outs yeah. of that, but I think there are models where this is done better than we we do it in Australia. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's super interesting. What I'm what I'm curious about, aside from like um, what what, I, what I'm interested in is gearing the conversation a little bit towards the kind of work from home setup, right? Because a lot of people are working from home, and in fact, it's one of the most interesting things that's happened to the to the property uh, landscape, right? Realistically, because because people's ability to work from anywhere has changed the dynamics of where people live right and access to internet starlink and all that kind of stuff a whole lot more than just home just a place to exist between work days yeah totally so there's three there's three drivers uh, behind any um sort of like location from a from a property investment perspective to define a good location three characteristics number one is jobs so economic opportunity uh number two is lifestyle so is it in an environment macro that they want to be in whether they prefer to be in farming areas or coastal or whatever but but is it uh does there is the lifestyle opportunity there uh, and then relative affordability, so can people afford to live there? But then outside of that, it's also things like um, the economic opportunity bit is really interesting because if people can work in Sydney or Melbourne uh, on the internet but live in, why like Tamworth, then that creates an interesting uh, opportunity. But what that does is that then pushes the work and home uh, existence together, and that can actually be really challenging as someone who's been working from home for uh, a really long time. Sometimes the the, the Having the, de- the 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 definition between the spaces can be really challenging, so I'm interested to to get some context around how people can. A lot of more people are in the kind of work from home scenario. How can people think about optimizing their work from home experience to optimize their current well being? So this is at the heart of thoughtful spaces. I do entire workshop consultancy on this. this is basically why I I created it to answer this very question so you'll appreciate there's not a quick answer there are lots and lots of domains it's good we've got time i'll do my best um the the crux of it is as i said before i think there's a real opportunity to leverage remote work we can actually enhance our well-being with that new flexibility that more and more people have post-covid i think we're on the same page about that and to me the crux of it is really also that any work that's more than going through the motions, so anything that's effortful or engaged or creative or meaningful in some way, really deserves a context. You matter enough, every, each person matters enough to set themselves up with the best context to enable whatever work they're doing. And in general, for knowledge work, which is kind of where I'm 
firstly have experience and where I'm setting a niche because I know it really well, that requires really good focus, um, which is something that we're rapidly losing as a society. There are so many reasons for that. Um, I won't go into all of them, but you know, it, it's acknowledged that we have less of an ability to focus into single task than we used to and that it's a struggle because we still need to be able to. There's just this perception that we need to be able to do everything at once. So anyway, focus is critical. Obviously, you want to be creative when, you know, you need to be creative, you need productivity in general, and you want to do that with a relative sense of ease. And that's, I think, providing a context for all those things, acknowledging that those states of mind and being require a context is kind of the foundation. Because I think often we just go, oh, we can work from home or we can work from wherever. All I need is my computer. And that's not really true. That's just the physical uh, machine that you need to set yourself up. That's the, and an internet connection, obviously. That's the bare minimum. Really, ideally, you want a lot more in that context to allow it. So, yeah, I, I think we can work from anywhere. It doesn't have to be a bricks and mortar home office perfectly set up, but consider all of the factors that make up the context. So, if it's the dining room table, can you clear your spat, your what you can see from it so that it's a less distracting place to be so that it doesn't have breakfast on it, for example, just at a minimum, you know, make sure that the context is kind of for work, even if it's not a work, you know, a home office. Um, so clearing of distractions, ensure you're really comfortable. I think also we just go, oh, well, all I need is a desk. And then we think about ergonomy, right? Like the right size chair and desk. That's kind of, if we get there, we think about that. But what about temperature? You know, research shows that when people are too hot, they get angry. Is angry the best way to sort of set yourself up for focus? Like you were saying, when you're highly aroused, you're not going to be making good decisions and all the rest of it. Um, we need light. There's so much to say about light. Sound pollution. We want silence either. So there's kind of a balancing act here. Nature sounds are really calming, something to consider. You can just put them in, you know, through a recording if you don't have birds tweeting outside your window. Like you said before, we need a sense of safety. Um, and that's not just that we're not going to get, you know, mugged at work, which is probably not a concern for most people, but that we um, more subtly that we won't be interrupted or um, that we have privacy when we need it and things like that. So working from anywhere might, you know, a cafe isn't always the ideal place for that, not just because of the noise, but because you don't have that sense of privacy. Instead. So there's just a whole lot of aspects of developing context that I think could be done a lot more intentionally by many people. And that's kind of why I created the space. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really it's 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 really interesting because um, I was thinking through, yeah, the, the real world. Like, how do I apply a lot of that stuff? Um, what's interesting as well is like different types, and I'd love to get your take on this. So maybe I'll try and phrase it as a question rather than a statement. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but do you think that um, different types of work? We're specifically talking about knowledge work. It's very hard to work from home if you need to go build somebody else's house, right? For example, right? So, so, um, but different types of work would benefit from different types of environmental settings. And some context for that, for example, is like I know that Gabby, um, for certain types of work, prefers to go and work from a cafe because there's something about for her, for her, there's something about having the movement and the sounds and the stuff that stimulates a level of creativity for her where she can she goes into this kind of deep work zone on a very specific type of work 
Uh, whereas for me, I'm like, if I have all those sounds, I'm just like, this, is, I can't, I can't. I'm like, I'm like, get me out of here, right? And, but I'm wondering if like there's, because it's, it's very hard to say, like, so perhaps like perhaps sitting on the couch for some type of work might be good, right? So is there, ha, is there a relationship between the spaces and the work? And then, um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm, as per your lived experience, and I think many people's, that is absolutely the case. The how and when the work is done is just as important as where it's done. It's kind of a combination of all of those things. So I'd add to the what kind of work and where to to when because we have a circadian rhythm throughout the day that's going to affect us all slightly differently, but there are sort of broad, you know, consistencies. We tend to be better focused in the morning, not first thing, but a little bit after that. You know, there are different times of week where we'll have different kind of levels of energy. So there's that as well to consider. But the types of work, for sure, even within knowledge work, yeah, we all have different modes that we work in. Some of it's kind of deep, really focused solo work, and it's, it's more collaborative or it's creative work or it's kind of a whole bunch of shallow administrative tasks or the worst possible thing is I'm trying to do it all at once. My day or my afternoon has the to-do list has a bunch of all of all of them. So, yeah, absolutely. And then there are these fascinating kind of little gems of findings in studies that point to little hints at how we can optimise the, the space for the type of work. So I'll just give you a minor example. Um, there's this thing called the cathedral effect where Taller ceilings prompt expansive and creative thought. It's not something I would have really picked up on, but now I think about it, yeah, it feels lovely to, I don't know, like, well, there are a couple of cafes near us that have really big ceilings. And I, I just love the feeling of going in there and I feel like I have bigger ideas when I go in. This same study looked at people's ability to do like kind of detail-oriented analytic work and find that actually they do it more accurately in a lower ceilinged place. So, you know, there is a context for everything. And, like, I haven't seen a study on couches, but sure, like, absolutely, it's about setting up. And every, as you say, everyone has different preferences as well. So for you, what is the best how, when, and where to do the kinds of work that you need to do? And can you optimise your working life for that, given the autonomy and the flexibility that your work life allows you? That's essentially what I want to support people to do. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that uh, as well about the cathedral effect. That's really interesting. And it made me think of... Um Something I learned from Dr. John Martini uh, a long time ago. He said something about um, if you can try and live somewhere where you can see the horizon, because if you can see the horizon, typically what what, what he was kind of referring to was like the, the horizon over the ocean, but but basically like long distance views. Um, that actually creates the space for your brain to expand. Like you'll have more expansive um creative thoughts because your perception is uh is different so i think it might be something similar for the for the for, as you were saying it i was like thinking about the like high voltage ceilings and i was like yeah you know what it does really change the emotional context of the of the of the space it sounds to me though like it sounds to me though like a lot of this is also stitched to habits now you mentioned like your pathway to get to the company that you now have which is called thoughtful spaces which specializes in Helping people to optimize their their environment to optimize their well being, but the pathway to get here to thoughtful spaces was habits, health, all of these other things, and I can't help but think they're all related, like they're all specifically related. Because like if you um, set up a perfectly ergonomic desk, but then you don't have the habits and rituals to support 
how that fits within the context, that could easily be that could easily be non-productive. Yeah, uh, I think that. A, so, so I'd be interested. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's why this is a dynamic thing that, as a psychologist, I bring something to it, and that's I think that's where it's a partnership with design because design can feel like a static thing like designing a building or a space or a perfectly ergonomic desk like you said but it's absolutely the how you use that perfect setup or several perfect setups that really matters and determines how much you're going to get out of it do you provide any guidance uh, on that when you when you work with companies or individuals because you know to, to back, back to the point like the neuro architecture is like okay <laughs> I'm going to say something where you might want to shoot me, but it's almost like thinking about it in that kind of like, um, well, no, I'm not going to mention Feng Shui. We'll, we'll stay away from that. But like at the positioning of the, of the like like how you set up the space, okay, that's great. But then it's like, here's how you need to interact with it. So, so is that something you explore? Because I'm also thinking of the, the definition, like defining work and non-work. And if you're lucky enough to have a place where you've got a home office and you can close the door, that's still a habit where it's like go in there and work, close the door and leave, right? And then that defines your context. But maybe you don't have the maybe you have to work in the space that you live in and all that kind of stuff. So how do you how do you um, teach, advise, uh, or consult with people on the relationship between habits and space? Yeah, so it's more possible in small group workshops or one on one that I do after the sort of feed your mind type session that you mentioned earlier. So that sort of provides the foundations and prompts people to think about these kinds of issues. And then I've developed a bunch of tools that actually ask them to reflect on their space and their practices specifically so that they can identify where they do creative work, for example, what their current sort of tension points are in their workday. And then we nut through together to work out a plan and to sort of test different ways because there isn't either one perfect way to do things and it'll probably change over time for people and as their habits change. And you mentioned the closing the door thing absolutely habit but you'll agree that's a pretty easy habit to do in terms of ending a work day and starting life or a non-work aspect of the day compared to someone that is you know on their couch for part of it or in their you know toddler's bedroom or something while they're working there's it's it still requires habits but it's got to be something a bit more deliberate because of that you can't just sort of close it off and then be visually done with it it's going to be more about you know setting a a set of on items that you physically put away so that you have this tangible sense that that is closed and done now um, so, so that you can re- form that space and transform that space back into whatever its standard, you know, or non-work use is. I love that. So I'm going to probably put you on the spot a little bit here, but if somebody wanted, if somebody's listening to this and they wanted to self-audit their kind of current environment to work out, okay, is this good or not? Like, have you got some questions or suggestions or prompts that someone listening to this could, could because I think if someone's listening to this and they've gotten this far into it, they're, they're, they're obviously interested in how to apply this. They're going, okay, this is, this is really cool. I'm, like, I want to feel better. I want to live a better life. Uh, what, are some of the, what are some prompts that they could go away and just think about or do? Or, or Can you give some kind of guidance on how they could start to self-assess their current set of circumstances and then what they can do about it? Mm. So there are lots of domains, like I mentioned, and it's kind of a like a process that probably takes 20 minutes that I've broken down and I, yeah, it's not something that is easily shared verbally. Um, but a simple example is to look around your space and identify um, anything that's visible to you or you sort of within 
arm or, you know, a few steps reach that isn't required for work in the space that you call your workspace. And as we talked about, that's going to be difficult for, well, it's going to be a different answer for people who are working in their kid's bedroom versus in a home office. But even in a home office, I guarantee you, if you look around, you'll find things that shouldn't be there. And we know about clutter and its physiological effect. That is like such a low-hanging fruit thing that feels too superficial to even worry about. Like, oh, how would tidying up help me work? Well, every thing that you don't need for your work that's not contributing some other value like reminding you why you work say pictures of your kids or something that sort of adds like is a values-based thing um can detract from your attention so it's you know um the washing up that you haven't done or the the dishes from lunch that's sitting on your desk still because you haven't put them away is like come on you slob like put away your dishes life admin the letters you haven't opened is telling you that you've got to do that and it's all sort of adding it's like a visual to-do list if you've got stuff there that's not directly what you need to do so that's just kind of one example another one is looking at where you get your light source from and whether there's glare at different types of times of day can you reorient so you don't because that's a huge stressor for the visual system um using light diffusing blinds is one suggestion i have i've got some here they're really like low cost um you can just buy the fabric and like put them on a uh, instant like curtain hanger to to stop glare but still get plenty of natural light natural light is you know just completely required for sleep um energy focus all of that sort of thing so yeah there's a whole bunch of um self-assessment things like that that come with recommendations because they will lead to yeah pretty obvious fixes yeah nice it almost sounds like what we're really trying to do is optimize for flow like, it's like okay how to can flow you put yourself a part in- yeah do you want to talk about flow then? Do you want to talk about how that, I'd love to get your take on that. And then, because when you were saying, um, you know, decluttering and all of that kind of stuff, the way that I was thinking about that was um, when you have, when you have all these kind of things around you, I, whether it be the lunch bowl sitting on anything, that it create like it gives you an opportunity to be, to be distra- including, you know, if you get notifications on your phone or whatever, all of these things, they did. De- they distra- I have no notifications on anything. If anything ever pings in my life or bings in my life, I'm like, what the hell is this? But like, if you can strip away all of the distraction, all you are left with is focus. And then it, when you get into those kind of states, you kind of get into flow. So, so is, it, is it kind of like, it might be oversimplifying it or misunderstanding, but are we, are we effectively optimizing for flow? And I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, I think that's, it's a really big part of it because in- more often in deep knowledge work than we would like to admit, flow is critical. We don't allow ourselves to get there a lot, which I think is what causes frustration in people's work days because they feel like they're multitasking. They never sort of make meaningful progress through one thing, constantly interrupted with Slack messages and emails and an expectation of synchronous communication. And all of that, like you said, completely disrupts flow. And over time, that sense of not being able to get through your important to-dos on your work to-do list creates burnout because it's a sense of like lack of control about it um, and a sense that you can never get into what is a deeply satisfying state. It's not just good because we're productive. It's a state that we as humans really thrive in and seek. Um, We've all had a taste of it, but um, it's pretty hard to get back into it. And you mentioned oversimplifying. So I think the environmental stuff like turning off your phone, making sure you don't distractions, that's a really good start. Um, it's probably not, it's not going to be the instant answer for everybody because 
we live in a world that is so distracted all the time. So it's really important to acknowledge as well that firstly, there are individual differences in how easily people can slip into a state of focus and also that it takes time to build that practice. It is a practice and it's, a, it's like a muscle that will grow and strengthen with, with use. So, I, you know, you can strip away everything but then feel incredibly frustrated that you still can't focus or it's very uncomfortable to be in that state if you haven't been in there before. So, I just want to acknowledge that it's not a silver bullet, sort of clearing your, your desk and turning off your notifications is not going to be the only thing, but it's a really, really good start. It's fa- it's fascinating, isn't it? Like sometimes, like if you strip away all the um, strip away all the distractions, and you know you're not used to it. It can feel really yeah, because your thoughts come to your mind, and the thoughts are scary because they're not always nice. Yeah, you need typically need to do a bit of a dopamine detox when 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 that kind of thing happens as well because you're not used to not having the stimulus. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating when you force force confront your thoughts. I kind of want to I want to think about this again from a practical perspective because you help companies to optimize for their for their uh, team, but you also help individuals. And I'm sort of thinking about this from a, or thinking about this from a lifestyle design perspective, right? Everyone, everyone is highly incentivized to create the best possible life they can. And on an individual level, like if you had the capability to, you know, improve the not only the efficiency with which you do your work, not so you can get more done, but so you can buy back more time, or the satisfaction with which you did the work that you did, so that you didn't finish the workday feeling exhausted and burnt out and, you know, all of this kind of stuff, then necessarily, like, that sounds like something that's really, really worth investing in. I heard a story, just as a little sl- slight segue, uh, I heard a story recently about a um, a guy, he, he was running a pretty successful company and he had one salesperson who outperformed all of the other salespeople by 400%. And, like, 400%, this that's is a true four times more. Or is this, like, a fable? It's a true story. Okay. No, it's a true story. No, no, the, the guy's Dan Martell. Anyone could look him up. It's, he was. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's 400. Um, it's a real. It's a real story. And he said he went to the the sales guy. And he said, "What the hell? Like, what's what's going on? Like, why why are you so more successful than everyone else?" And he said, "Well, I kind of worked out the only thing I needed to do was be on sales calls. So I hired my own assistant so that I could um, just focus on doing the things that I could do best. And I got them to take care of all the other stuff. The 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 moral of that is that." It, that that person took the initiative to invest in themselves and net-net created such a massively asymmetrical outcome. Now, in that context, it's financial. But again, as we've mentioned several times, finance is just one part of what success uh, looks like. And do you and know so, what? He allowed himself to single task as well by doing that. Love that. So, yes, that. He invested, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you- specifically, he invested in his ability to do the thing he did best. And to not be distracted by the other crap. Love that. Yeah, yeah. Good, great observation. Yeah, yeah. T- correct. Because like multitasking is not a thing and switching costs is a thing. <laughs> so so the, 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 the higher the variety of tasks, the, the lower the efficacy of the things you need to do So, or the things that you're going to do. Um, so what, what I found and, interesting about that was- Just the, one was more the, thing. The, oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. Finish the story. You know, you go. No, you go. Was, you go. You go. All right. I'll go. Um, I think- it's really hard to muscle your way through single tasking and forcing focus and that sort of thing. And that's where making it a bit easier by letting the environment support you is key. Putting structures around yourself so it's not just willpower because willpower is finite and it's very effortful. But if we, as you say, invest 
in the time or in whatever it is to set yourself up well, then you're giving yourself a fighting chance to to get into flow more often, to focus better, to you know, get through things, be more efficient. 100% agree. And there's loads of studies, and you actually probably have way more knowledge on this than I do, but there's loads of studies um, that I've seen that talk about you know, in any given workday, how much effective work is actually being done. And I've seen anything from several minutes. Yeah, I've seen anything from several minutes to maybe a couple of hours, and which is fascinating because, like, realistically, no one wants to waste their time. Like, nobody wants to just be working for work's sake. So if you can improve your ability to, to be more effective, then what you're effectively doing is creating either increased outcome or decreased time or effort or one of those two we live uh, in a very presenteeism which- world, though, Goose. It's pretty hard to get to or just be effective and in the time is your own because most people are under a kind of presenteeism model where they've got to be, even if they've done their work, their sort of core work, they've got to be there on Slack and on email and all this sort of stuff. Like there's a whole culture shift that needs to go with this as well so that efficiency isn't penalized by requiring you to, then to sit there and, you know, do the admin yeah, I 100% agree with you and 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 I'm really passionately anti that, which is but also that's one of the things I want to advocate for. If if anyone hasn't read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, I highly recommend you read it because he t- he actually discusses in that book how to tackle if you're in one of those kind of working environments where they like need you to punch the clock to show that you've been working even if like you do 2 hours of work and you need to punch in and punch out after 8 hours. It's it's totally it's a very old metaphor, way yes. to work. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's it, you know, but it's but it's true. Like yeah. our hours don't equal outcomes, and no. um, in fact, they're almost. And, and I think if the, exactly right, and so even starting to plant the seed at an individual level that that is not true actually helps to then change the status quo. Because yeah. if more individuals want to rail against that, then they don't want to be in work environments where that becomes the norm, where that is the norm, and all of that kind of stuff. And so I think that change happens slowly first and then all at once and yeah. so and at these every kind level, of things shifting like, the perspective is important yeah. yeah totally i think individuals can drive this because after all organizations are made up of individuals so the culture change bingo. And practices have to change at every level bingo bingo and that's something we've done at dashlot so we don't uh we don't track anyone's hours we never have tracked anyone's hours that's ever. great and we and never will your outcomes have been great haven't they they've been fantastic yeah uh the, Sorry the, to understate it. we 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 measure we measure the outcomes in a variety of different ways. You know, there's like financial metrics and whatever. But the things that the things that we really measure are things like, you know, our team engagement. You know, like how engaged are people in the business and are they happy and fulfilled? Because we have a very, have a very low. You know, the, the technical term is turnover rate, but like you know, team members leaving the it's it is insanely low. Why? Because we've optimized for a place where people can have a degree of flexibility. You know, we we operate uh, on a th- on a ethos of freedom and responsibility and there's some constraints around that because you've got to make sure everything can functionally you know o- organize effectively but giving people that, that degree of autonomy which we talked about earlier is is uh, super important but if someone's listening to this you you do individual workshops do you not is that something you offer for i people? have provided them before i don't have a clear kind of schedule as to when i do them but on my website there's an expression of interesting and basically when i ha- have enough people i run them so if the organisation isn't going to provide it, then yes, I do support individuals as well. And I've done one-on-one work as well, which is deeply satisfying for me and the person involved usually. So I like doing that too. Someone needs to deeper dive. Yeah, and that, that's kind of why, why I wanted to set up that, um, that that I guess, token of personal responsibility because you don't have to wait. Like if you're in a, if you're in a situation where you're like, all right, I'm, I'm unhappy with my 
current set of circumstances. I don't feel fulfilled. I think my workspace could be better. I want more satisfaction in how I do my work. Outsourcing the responsibility to the organization and saying, hey, please, will you come and fix my problem? I mean, that's one way of doing it. But you're reliant on an organization being evolved enough to really see the value in that. We, 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 we've known from the get-go that the value in the company comes from the team, but most companies don't think that way. So then if you take the personal responsibility back and say, okay, well, how could I change this for myself? That's why I wanted to bring that in because you, you, can, you are the master and commander of your own experience, your own perception and your own destiny, your own reality. So then why not take charge of that? Yeah. And even if you're working for the man or you don't have as much autonomy as you like or not in a work situation you love, optimizing the way you work will make you enjoy that more and make you more empowered to be able to find the thing that works better for you. So it's sort of very self-defeating to hate the situation and then to go, oh, well, because that's for someone else's profits, why would I bother trying to be more efficient or more productive? Well, you'll feel a lot better when you're working at your best. You'll have more sort of self-respect and you'll be producing results that are better externally as well and then have more leverage to go somewhere else if you know, that's the goal. Love that. Love that. That's perfect. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's a conversation, obviously, it's um, that doesn't really get had very often. But again, and with you know, not to labour the point, but all we have is the experience of the environment that we're in. Realistically, like it, it, it changes so much about, as I mentioned earlier, about how we view the world. So I think it's a critical conversation to have when we think about things like happiness, well-being, satisfaction, all that kind of stuff. So it's been a really, really interesting uh, and fulfilling conversation for me to have. So thank you. I've enjoyed and, it too. Thanks, Chris. Oh, that's good. I'm delighted. And if you're interested in learning more about this, and I, I highly recommend you head to thoughtfulspaces.com.au. That's Dr. Amy's uh, website. We can go and learn more and, again, potentially inquire about um, our small group stuff or, or workshops, things like that. I think this is something that everyone can really kind of take home and, and action. Is there anything else you wanted to, to add or tease out before we wrap things up? No, I think you've done a great job there, Goose, and it's yeah, been a fun convo. Thanks for it. My absolute pleasure. Well, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. And of course, if you're listening to this and you have enjoyed it, make sure that you think of someone who you think will benefit from this information because this is full of juicy, good stuff. Think of, think of them, send it to them, and just send them a little note saying, hey, I just watched this podcast or listened to this podcast and I thought of you. I think you'd enjoy it. That way we can share these messages around and we can help more people benefit from this kind of stuff as well. And with that being said, thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode.